Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 186, How to Tell Whether Christians and Muslims Worship the Same God, Part 2. Dr. Bogardis and Ms. Urban, welcome back to the Trinity's podcast. Hi, Dale. It's good to be back. Thank you. Last week, we talked about this issue about whether Christians and Muslims worship the same God from purely a philosophical angle. In your excellent article, you gave kind of a recipe for how to decide the question just on general grounds and using very interesting real-life cases about reference shift. But I think in this episode, it would be interesting to bring in some theology and some religious commitments because they're really relevant, I think, also to this question for both Christians and Muslims. So here's one fact about Islam. It's always been a core part of Islamic theology that the God they're talking about just is the same God that Jews and Christians are talking about. So if you're a Muslim, you have to believe in co-reference as to philosophy, you could still wonder, you know, how to explain why that's so, but it looks like you have to accept that. Doesn't that seem right? That might be right. I mean, another question will be, how does this commitment weigh against other commitments within um, Islamic theology? I mean, they're also committed to God being non-Trinitarian and Jesus not being the Son of God, etc. And so, I mean, if we ask the question, what if Islam is true and Christianity is false and Christians have been saying all this false stuff mm-hmm. about God? It might just be that um, despite the Christians' best intentions to keep talking about Allah, nevertheless, they've, they've managed to shift the reference of the word. So, yeah, I mean, although Muslims will want it to turn out that Christians are talking about the same God, if we also add that they've been saying all these wildly false things about God, Christians have been saying God's Trinitarian and Jesus is the Son of God, etc., It could just be that at the end of the day, Muslims will decide that's more important. The fact that they're saying all these false things is more important than preserving this co-reference doctrine. I mean, Marco Polo probably thought, to go back to that Madagascar example, he probably intended to use the name in the same way everybody else was using it. If you had asked him, hey, did you just originate a new use of this name? He'd say, no, no, I'm definitely referring to the same thing everybody else is. Nevertheless, despite that belief of his, he managed to shift the reference of the word Something similar could be happening in the Christian-Muslim case. This is an interesting point. You say this in the paper somewhere that just intending to continue the reference doesn't guarantee that you actually succeed. I think that's right. But I have to tell you, Muslims are going to stand firm on this. I mean, their apologists pound the table on this. That's the same God. They think this is to their advantage, and it's, it's been a selling point. I mean, just the fact that they take Muhammad as a model. He's supposed to be our model to imitate in all things. And it's clear from the Quran and the Hadith that he did try to convince the Jews and the Christians that he was a prophet of their God, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, Muhammad thought it was the same God and Muslims are going to really stand firm, I think, even with the Trinity and the Incarnation in saying it's the same God. They'll point out that um, according to Islam, God sent Moses' revelation, and he sent the Psalms of David, and even sent the gospel, whatever that's supposed to mean. Like, the Quran seems to think that Jesus, like, had a book, like Muhammad, (laughs) that he brought as revelation. But anyway, um, yeah, I think they're going to, just as a religious requirement, just insist on sameness of reference. It's It's more on the Christian side that there's a concern that the description has changed so much that it's shifted. But there's another religious commitment, it strikes me, on the, on the Christian side. So think about the Christians and the Jews. What do you guys think? Do you think Christians want to say that Jews aren't talking about the same God? I think that is an interesting question, whether Christians and Jews are talking about the same God, worshiping the same God. It's not one that we address in the paper, but um, I at least hope that the sort of test we lay out in the paper, asking oneself those two hypothetical questions, could apply in this case as well. I mean, Christians, I think, will want it to turn out that um, Abraham was talking about the same God that Christians are talking about. Right. But probably Abraham was not a Trinitarian. 
mm-hmm. didn't know anything about Jesus, would not have affirmed the incarnation and the resurrection, etc. So doesn't that show that like Trinitarianism and the incarnation and the resurrection are not really essential bits of the dossier? One important difference, I think, to point out between Abraham and contemporary Jewish users of divine names is that Abraham had sort of a thinner dossier, a more minimal dossier about God. Mm -hmm. It's true that he didn't affirm Trinitarianism, but he also didn't deny it. And it's true that he didn't affirm the incarnation, but he also didn't deny it. Everything that's in his dossier, Christians agree with. It's just Christians have added more. Whereas contemporary Jewish users of the divine name have added more to the dossier than Abraham had. They've added some negations of Christian doctrines. They said, hey, everything Abraham thought about God is true. And also, God's not a trinity. And there was no incarnation and there was no resurrection, etc. So it could be, it may well be, that Abraham and Christians are, were talking about the same God. Abraham was talking about the same God that Christians are talking about. And yet at the same time, contemporary Jewish users of the divine names have shifted the reference and are not talking about the same object that Christians are talking about. That could happen. And again, I think the way to find out is to run those little hypothetical tests we sketch. Each person asks him or herself those two questions we could check whether Abraham was talking about the same God by asking ourselves. So I'm a, I'm a contemporary Christian. I'll ask myself, well, suppose I'm right and Abraham were wrong. What if he were wrong? Oh, dear. Everything that we disagree about, suppose he were wrong. Well, we don't really disagree about anything, I guess. It's all hypothetical disagreement. Well, I mean, I affirm everything he affirms about God. There's nothing he said about God that I don't agree with. So, yeah, that's kind of a weird Um, hypothetical to consider. What if I were right and he were wrong? I don't know if that's possible because he doesn't say anything that I disagree with. So I guess I could just put myself in his position and say, what if the way he was using the word God, what if he showed up today and found out God's a trinity, God God the Son became incarnate, etc. Would the divine name as he was using him still apply? I think it could. I think he might just say, well, that's really surprising. God's a trinity and uh, the second person of that trinity became incarnate. I think that his use of the name could tolerate that sort of uh, additional information. Whereas contemporary Jewish users of the name, I mean, there I have to ask myself, what if they're right about God? So omniscient, omnipotent, et cetera, creator of the world, not a trinity, um, did not send Jesus, uh, et cetera. There it's less clear whether Christian use of the name is still going to refer. Those are different questions to ask. And again, it may well turn out that Abraham and Christians are talking about the same God, but contemporary Jewish users and Christians are not. It'd still be surprising, though, wouldn't it? Just take a conversation that might happen between a uh, conservative Jew and a traditional Christian. Christian says, well, we think Jesus is God's Messiah. And the Jew's like, nope. Doesn't that presuppose that we're referring to the same being? I mean, we say nope to children who use the, same, who use the name Santa Claus all the time, or at least in our heads we do. If we're polite, we don't say it out loud. But when they say, they say Santa Claus is going to give me presents this year, we think to ourselves, nope. Um, that's not because we think they're saying false things about St. Nicholas. Um, it's rather because we think, oh man, these poor kids are using an empty name, talking about creatures of fiction, etc. So it could be that the conservative Jew, uh, when he or she says nope, it could be that um, they're just denying that what the Christian said is literally true. That could be happening. And I just wanted to briefly mention a third option that didn't really come out in the last podcast. When you ask yourself these two hypothetical questions, what if Christianity were false and Islam were true, could God still refer? What if Islam were false and Christianity were true, could Allah still refer? You could answer yes to either or both of those questions. You could answer no to either or both of those questions. But you could also just say it's unclear (laughs) to either or both of those questions. And then it could be that the it's not clearly a case of reference shift yet, but it's also not clearly a case of not reference shift. We're sort of in between, maybe in the same way that the name Santa Claus was sort of in between sometime in the late 1800s. It mm-hmm. wasn't clear yet whether, whether it had shifted to fiction. Um, it's just sort of indeterminate. If there is an answer, we're not in a position to know it. And I mean, to be honest, I mean, that's I think that's where I'm landing these days. I think the answer to both of those hypothetical questions is unclear. 
indeterminate. Really, in the case of Judaism and Islam? Well, at least in the case of Islam, uh, God, I haven't thought really hard about the case of contemporary Jewish use of the divine names. But I suppose, I mean, put on the spot, I, I would probably come out in the same way and say it's unclear whether there's been a reference shift. Well, what you're saying makes sense. I mean, so when Christianity began, you know, the Christians stole the Jewish words, basically, and continued the usage. Then you would think, well, they're surely referring to the same being at the beginning. But then as time goes on, things change. And from the Jewish or the Christian perspective, the other side is saying more and more false things. And uh, then, so at least it's theoretically possible that the reference could have shifted to either a fiction or to another being. But, uh, gosh, that sounds like a bitter pill to swallow regarding Jews, even though it is definitely true that, you know, whereas Abraham wasn't against the Trinity, surely Jews have been for a long time now. But I guess my concern was anything that you say is essential to the description, a sine qua non part of the dossier without which it can't refer to God. Anything you stick in there to exclude Muslims from referring to God is going to exclude Jews from referring to God. And my thought was a lot of Christians are going to say, no, that's wrong. I mean, I still think the Jews can refer to God even today, not just in, you know, two millennia ago. When the Trinity's podcast returns, isn't there an official Roman Catholic position on this issue? This is interesting to me now that you're, um, you're, you're saying you're kind of on the fence, because my next question was, if you're a Roman Catholic Christian, don't you pretty much have to accept that Jews and Muslims are successfully referring to, even trying to worship the same God as Christians? I mean, in your article, you mentioned that the Pope asserted this in an official statement in 1965 called in Latin, Nostra Aetate. Doesn't that make co-reference a required view for Roman Catholics? Uh, that's a question for me, huh? I don't know if Ms. Urban, are you Protestant or Catholic? Protestant. Okay. Well, I guess she's exempt then. Yeah, she's not, <laughs> she's not bound by this. Yeah. She's not bound by this Vatican II declaration. So, yeah, as you mentioned, Pope Paul VI says, and this is a quote from that Vatican II declaration, he says, the church regards with esteem also the Muslims, they adore the one God. They adore the one God. So it sure sounds like Pope Paul VI was committed to co-reference and, in fact, co-worship. I mean, he says they adore the one God. Mm -hmm. um, so must contemporary Roman Catholics reconcile themselves to that? I'm just, oh boy, I'm going to punt a little bit. I've been Catholic for six years. Uh, I wish I had some of my super Catholic philosopher friends here to tell me exactly how binding this Vatican II declaration is hmm. and whether it's essential to being a Catholic. To be honest, I'm a little unclear about that myself. Yeah. There's so many layers of different types of statements and sort of degrees of officialness. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think every time that sort of papal declaration comes out, Catholics must affirm every word in there. I mean, if it was part of the canons of a ecumenical council, yeah, for sure. If the Pope made it clear that he's speaking ex cathedra, yeah, for sure. I'm somewhat doubtful that either one of those was going on in this statement. But uh, maybe I can just content myself with um, this thought. I'm with him like one or two days of the week. Um, I'm, I could affirm that statement. I sort of vacillate. I go back and forth. And I guess it also might turn out that... The way he uses the divine names, he's using them um, something more like a title or an office. And he might have in mind, um, we also in the paper mentioned Thomas Aquinas. When Thomas Aquinas gives arguments for God's existence, the result of the argument is a somewhat um, 
it's it's a very thin conception of God. Like, for example, one of his arguments concludes, some intelligent being exists by whom all natural things are directed to their end. Mm-hmm. That's the conclusion of the argument. There's just some intelligent being exists by whom all natural things are directed to their end. And then he goes on with a semicolon, and this being we call God. So he seemed to think that that's enough for that entity to deserve the name God. As long as it's intelligent and directs all natural things to their end, that's God. So some people seem to use the generic divine names in a pretty generous way. And so, of course, it's not surprising then that if Christianity turned out to be false and Islam turned out to be true, and there is an intelligent being by whom all natural things are directed to their end, and he's omniscient, etc., and he's spoken through Moses, etc., of course Aquinas is going to call that God. And I think maybe Pope Paul VI was using the name in the same way. And it could just be that I've joined, from their perspective, a deficient use of the name. I've joined uh, a sort of overly strict name-using practice for these divine names. Maybe that's my problem. And so that's why I think when I entertain these hypothetical questions, if Christianity were false and Islam were true, it's unclear whether God would exist. Maybe I'm just part of a different name-using practice. And what I ought to do is join the practice, the very generous practice that Aquinas and Pope Paul VI were part of. Maybe that's what's going on. Maybe that's what they're reporting. Maybe that's what Pope Paul VI is reporting. Hey, I'm part of this generous name-using practice. And as long as there's a creator of the world who's omniscient and um, quite kind and omnipotent, etc., that's God. Yeah, I don't know if it's essential to be a Catholic that one participate in that very name-using practice. I don't know. These are sticky questions. I'm going to stop talking about it now. In your paper, you say, yeah, maybe the Pope is uh, attributively using the name. And an attributive use is where you say a person gives maximal weight or centrality to some feature or set of features. And uh, one of the examples you give is Jack the Ripper. I think that's an interesting, obvious case. So why is he an illustration of an attributive use of a name? So the way that name was introduced, uh, my limited knowledge of history has it going like this. All these really vicious crimes were being committed. Nobody knew who was committing them. And so um, detectives or police officers said, well, let's just introduce a name for whoever's committing all these crimes. Jack the Ripper. And when we use that name, we're sort of using it in a way such that anybody who has committed all those crimes gets the name. Mm -hmm. Um, The name applies to that person. And there's no way the name could apply to someone who hadn't committed all those crimes. I mean, if a detective came back and said, hey, guess what? I found Jack the Ripper, but he actually didn't commit any of these crimes. I think the proper response is, oh, I thought we were just using the name to refer to whoever was committing all these crimes. Yeah, he doesn't get it. He hasn't been following the news. Yeah. So similarly, it could be that especially with these generic divine names like God and Allah, and Elohim or whatever. Maybe people who are using those names are using it in this attributive way. It just means it's just a title or an office or a position occupied by any being who's has enough of the divine attributes. Maybe that's the way they're using the name. And I think it would be interesting to ask Aquinas or Pope Paul VI about a, a personal name for God, maybe about Yahweh or maybe the name Jesus. Uh, maybe a name that is less apt to be used in this purely attributive way. I think that would be an interesting question for people who seem to be using these generic divine names in an attributive way. Oh, how about the personal divine names? Mm-hmm. If Christianity were false and Islam were true, would there still be a Yahweh? I think that's an interesting question. Would that name still refer? Yeah, in your paper, the two of you also discuss demonstrative use of a name. And this is where we're in some way aware of an object and we're just going to use the name for that thing, even if we're, you know, mistaken about what that thing is that we're perceiving. Can you discuss this, this uh, Captain Martini example? Suppose you're at a party and there's a person and someone says, hey, who is that person over there drinking a martini? Your focus is on the fact that it's the person that you're pointing to there in front of you who is presented to you. So if it turns out, for example, that they are not drinking martini, that it's water in the glass, um, then you can still refer to that person in front of you, even if that fact about them is incorrect, because 
you're using the name demonstratively to refer to the person before you. Right. You imagine introducing a name and the name you introduce is something in the paper we say Captain Martini or something. If, as Mallory said, the bit of information that you give most weight to is that it's this person in front of you, then, as Mallory said, I mean, even if they're drinking something else, uh, or even if they're not drinking anything, or even if it's you thought it was a woman, but it turns out to be a man, or you thought it was a man and it turns out to be a woman, none of that really matters because what was most important in this use of the name is that it's this person here in front of you. But even in cases like this, um, I've had this thought, this isn't in the paper, but even in cases like this, there's going to be some information that might be crucial to your use of the name. I mean, if it turned out that it was a cardboard cutout and not a person at all, mm-hmm. maybe you'd say, oh, there is no Captain Martini. Mm-hmm. Or suppose it's just a hologram or something. Yeah. I, I don't know. It depends. It depends on really how heavily you've weighted the demonstrative information. If you really just want to refer to this, whatever it is, <laughs> then I guess it could end up referring to a cardboard cutout or a hologram. If you really mean to refer to this person, yeah. then you've sort of mixed demonstrative information with some attributive information. Yeah. If it turned out that you were just totally hallucinating, I don't know, at least in the most natural interpretation of this case, you wouldn't say, oh, I guess I was referring to a little portion of my visual field or an array of colors and shapes. Right. You get the point. Sometimes we give a lot of weight to demonstrative information in the name's dossier. Yeah. So if you said Captain Martini just made a joke and then you found out it wasn't a martini, big deal. It's still true. Maybe that person made a joke. You find it's not really a man. Oh, okay. Well, Ms. Captain Martini made a joke. Uh, yeah, exactly. But if you found out it was just a hallucination, yeah. Unless you mean to be talking about a hallucination or something, probably you're going to think that you failed to refer in that case. Yeah, that sounds right. To get back to real life cases and the case at hand, you might think that there is a demonstrative use of the name Allah here. So if you think about what Paul says in Romans chapter 1, his point he's driving at is that the Gentiles are still guilty for their sin, even though they don't have the law, unlike the Jewish people. He seems to say that all people basically are aware of God as the creator of the cosmos. Either aware of it or they can know it. They have access to this information. Um, suppose they're just aware of this somehow. Like uh, even an atheist, when they go out in nature... Sometimes it just seems so grand, like it seems like to them like it's God's handiwork. Doesn't that imply that Muslims could use the name Allah demonstratively just for the creator? The one who made all of this? To me, that seems like a a pretty broad use of demonstrative because there would have to be some kind of, I I I think there would have to be some kind of metaphysical religious experience for that to be demonstrative. Mm-hmm. Some sort of contact with this creator that you're trying to refer to, if you're if you're if you are using the name demonstratively, which an awareness it doesn't seem to me like that is enough to constitute using the name demonstratively. It'd have to be a veridical awareness, I take it. Well, I just wanted the second the motion. I mean, this sounds more like they're using the name in what we call the attributive way. If you just um, mean to use the name to refer to the creator of the world then you're sort of giving maximal weight to that little description, the creator of the world. Um, What we would need for a demonstrative use of the name, as Mallory said, is some sort of interaction, some sort of contact. It's got to be an object of acquaintance for you that you can refer to with a demonstrative. Yes. So it could happen in like religious experience that people really do become acquainted with God. And then if they introduced a divine name or decided oh, it's this divine name that applies to that thing there, and then give maximal weight to the demonstrative information, then those sorts of people, I think, could use the divine names in a demonstrative way. But I don't know if that's the most common way of using divine names. In fact, I think that's probably pretty uncommon. I think most of us use it in some combination. We give weight to certain attributes. We also use it in a deferential way, as we discuss in the paper. We mean to use the name as our co-religionists are using it. We sort of defer to experts. Mm -hmm. We mean to refer to whoever it was that um, the disciples were referring to or Jesus was referring to or whatever. We sort of defer to other name users. I think it's pretty rare to get a genuinely demonstrative use of the divine names. But I can just speak from my 
in my personal case. That's not how I'm using it. <laughs> I think, yeah, I, I'm not sure. I mean, it might be rarer among the theorists, you know, like us philosophers and theologians. I mean, if, if uh, the Gentiles, the peoples of the world, really have enough knowledge of God through creation to be responsible to him, that would seem to entail some kind of acquaintance, I think, some kind of causal interaction. This is what some theologians call general revelation as opposed to special revelation. Not all theologians believe in it, but I mean, our typical examples of demonstrative usage uh, involves sense perception, right? Like that guy, the one mm -hmm. I'm seeing, or whoever I heard make this comment from the back of the class, mm -hmm. that type of thing. But yeah, I don't see why um, just sort of inner awareness couldn't be enough also. Well, when you talk about inner awareness, are you just talking about um, like, are you talking about a religious experience or are you just talking about reflecting on nature and deciding, oh, there's a capital D designer? I think anything involving that sort of inference is not going to count on acquaintance on, on most understandings of acquaintance. But if you really mean like maybe maybe it's actually quite typical for people to have religious experience. Yeah, it's not clear that it's inference that it's a, that it's a design argument, you know, um, mm -hmm. if there is this kind of knowledge given to the human race. Yeah, so I guess what we would need for it to turn out that a lot of people are using the divine names demonstratively is we would need it to be a sort of direct encounter with God whenever they open their eyes and look at the stars in the night sky or whatever, the human eyeball, and they're having some sort of direct encounter with God, and it's not an inference, unconscious or otherwise, that God exists. They just start using the name God to refer to that direct object of their acquaintance. And then also, they give that information maximal weight and no longer use the name deferentially. They, they would no longer def defer to any other users of the name. That's what would have to be going on for a significant number of religious believers to be using divine names in this demonstrative way that we sketch. And uh, yeah, I guess I'll just record my skepticism that that is happening very often. When the Trinity's podcast returns, is empirical evidence relevant to this question? Regardless, I was thinking about your remark uh, from a little bit ago that, well, maybe the Pope and I are just using words in different ways. We're part of different practices. It would say, well, if you use the words in one way, then they're co-referring. If you use words another way, they're not. But if that's so, then some people would just be kind of insisting that they don't want to use the words in the co-referring way. Like they're just being stingier. Uh, maybe more needs to be said about these different uh, different ways of using names. For what it's worth, I'm not so sure about that answer either. Um, and I think these are really tricky issues that you're venturing into. There's definitely more work to be done. I mean, this paper was like 10,000 words, but at least I feel like we did not even get close to getting to the bottom of the issue. Yeah. There's definitely more work to be done. But I can at least say this. So when you ask yourself these hypothetical questions... You know, if Christianity were true and Islam were false, um, could Allah still refer? If Islam were true and Christianity were false, could God still refer as Christians are using the word God? You definitely want to protect yourself against like self-delusion. You don't want to just answer those questions based on what you want to be true. Right. You'd actually like to get an accurate assessment of how you're using the words. Right. So that's one thing. Guard yourself against self-delusion. And then also... Um, it might turn out that polls would actually be useful here. Surveys would be useful. Maybe it would be relevant to figure out how most Christians are using the word, the words God, sure. the word God. 
and how yeah. most Muslims are using the word, that, that might actually be relevant here. I have something relevant on this topic that I wanted to bring up. I guess there are some studies uh, done by missiologists, even in some, a couple of them are statistical. I'm not sure how, how, um, how good the statistical data is that they have. But before I get to that, though, I like your answer, let's guard against self-delusion, just, you know, whatever answer I want to be, like my passions push me toward, that's what I'm going to say. Imagine that somebody's an extreme Calvinist, and they say, well, in my dossier, when I'm talking about the Christian God, I say that providence is central there. And I mean providence the way a Calvinist defines it, right? Double predestination and everything. So you Arminians, open theists, Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, fooey, you're not even talking about God. Uh, yeah, that's a, that's a hard line. Yeah. It, it, but I, get, I mean, I could, I could see that happening. Um, I've known some Calvinists like that, and maybe they really do come to believe that any being who doesn't stand in this sort of predestination relation to us just doesn't deserve the name God. God's got to be like maximally sovereign. Otherwise, it's, it's not really God. It's just some sort of well, demigod. That's a generous response. I mean, it, look, it, it sounds ridiculous, you know, like, uh, look, of course we're talking about God. Like, give me a break. Uh, you can't just say that's a sine qua non part of the dossier. Uh, saying it so doesn't make it so. And don't we all know that that isn't so? Yeah. It's almost like they're just saying, I can refer to God and you can, you losers. <laughs> you know? Because I have yeah, this special well, insight that you lack, namely providence. Yeah, for it to actually be true that they're referring to God and we are not, it would have to be the case that their form of Calvinism is true, mm -hmm. right? I mean, you ask yourself two hypothetical questions when you're trying to figure out whether those co-reference, what if view one were true and view two were false? And what if view two were true and view one were false? So if it turns out that like, you know, non-Calvinist Christianity is true and Calvinist Christianity is false, it might be that Calvinists have not corrupted the dossier so much as to cause a shift in reference. So despite their insistence, they are talking about the same God that we are. Right. Yeah, which is what most would say. Uh, yeah. So yeah, just because even if somebody is insistent in this way, it doesn't follow that we're talking about different gods because they could be wrong. And despite their insistence, they haven't corrupted the dossier so much as to cause a reference shift. Yeah, it seems like pride can come into it, you know, if you're if you're really proud of, of some pet view that you have. Now, about about actual empirical evidence and statistics, I did read a few pieces by missiologists, uh, you know, people who teach in a seminary and theorize about Christian missions and how to culturally adapt the gospel and things like this. And um, they have some interesting things to say, but back to the idea of dossiers, it strikes me that it's really the insiders who are really qualified to sort of see or feel what's truly sine qua non in the different dossiers, right? It's not just whatever you say it is or whatever you want it to be, but it's presumably if you're a member of that group, you're going to be equipped to sort of judge what's weighty and central in the dossier and then what is, what is not, what's more peripheral, right? So... If that's right, yeah. that the insider has, is in generally speaking, the person with the more insight about what's in the dossiers, then maybe uniquely qualified people would be those who have converted from one to the other, because those people have been on the inside of both. So I read in one paper that most people, according to this missiologist, uh, most people who convert from Islam to Christianity don't think that they've switched gods. Rather, most of them think that they now better understand Allah, and now they've entered into a more intimate relation to him, whereas before it was a master-servant. Now it's still that, but it's also father-child. So I don't know if this is right, because I haven't seen the statistics personally, but supposing that was right, that that's what most former Muslim converts to Christianity say, wouldn't that be good evidence for co-reference, just generally? It's all going to be highly speculative at this point. This is not something we've thought a lot about. I mean, I guess I think that would be relevant and would be very interested in hearing that sort of information. Something I think is right is, um, even though I myself am not um, a part of the Muslim use of divine names, I'm, I myself am not Muslim, so I don't 
use the name Allah as a part of that community. Nevertheless, I can still sort of um, know how they're waiting the term. I mean, I'm not part of the child's use of the name Santa Claus, but I can still know how they're waiting the information and dossier. I am not your mother's son, but I can still, you know, participate in the way that you use your mother's name. So I think we could know how members of other religions are using the divine names, even if we're not members of that religion. Uh, so we still might be in a position to answer these hypothetical questions, even without recourse to the this information you sketch from the missiologists. So that's something that I thought would be appropriate to say at this point. Uh, it sounds like Mallory has something. Yeah, and also I think if the worry here is that we're just saying, you know, based on whatever our own individual evidence is, oh, this is San Quinan, this is not. I think that, you know, having converts say, oh, well, I, you know, I think that I don't think I've changed reference. Like that's, while that is interesting and, and like Tomas said, it's, you know, interesting to look into more, but I think that doesn't solve the problem of, you know, that's still just individuals giving testimony. It's not anything more than that. Yeah. Right. I think so. I mean, in the paper, we sort of leave it unclear as to who the relevant um, users of the name are. Is is the answer to this question going to vary by individual or should we be concerned about groups? Mm-hmm. We just uh, don't answer that question. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe somebody else could answer that question in another paper. I'd, I would love to read that paper. Indeed. Yeah. I mean, I have no doubt that some people are going to disagree too. Like, Actually, a guy named Nabil Qureshi, I don't know if you've heard of him, he's a convert from a type of Islam to evangelical Christianity. And when he wrote about it in his book, it sounded very much like he thought he was interacting with God as a Muslim. And then, you know, God answered his prayers, and that's why he became a Christian. And so it sounds like he just sort of smoothly went from one of the religion to the other with a with the sameness of reference. Um, but since he's become an evangelical... He strongly insisted that it's not the same God. It's, it's strange because it's, it looks like there's a disconnect between his book and now what his official position is. But um, surely there are going to be some people who disagree and say it's a different God. But I guess it would get my attention if it was true that an overwhelming mass of former Muslim Christian converts said that they didn't change God's. And then similarly, if an overwhelming mass of former Christian converts to Islam said the same thing, I think I would count that as not indefeasible, but anyway, it's good evidence for co-reference. It, de- it would depend on what the, what the context was, you know, but I would like to think they were just sincerely reporting the way they viewed it, that there wasn't any kind of big culture war thing going on in that type of report. I have the impression that generally converts to Islam do think that they were worshiping God imperfectly before when they were Christians. Um, But again, I'd like to see some real properly done statistical studies. Yeah. Well, here's one more thing that might be relevant that I thought of. I mean, it's possible for um, one person, an individual, to initiate a new name using practice. So suppose that I decide to name my dog Aristotle, for example. Um, I borrow the name Word, and I get a new mental file folder going, and I start filling it up with information about my dog. I've started a new practice here, and if I'm not using the name deferentially anymore, I I don't mean to defer to the way the name is commonly used, the way that name Aristotle is commonly used. Right. Then I think the right way to describe this is we've got at least a a new name-using practice here. I'm no longer assimilating information into that file folder that we all share where we put information about Aristotle, the philosopher. Um, I'm now assimilating information into a new file folder, um, and it's going to be information about my dog. And so that can happen. And so um, I will answer questions about Aristotle differently than you do if I've initiated this new practice, um, even though I'm just one individual. Something similar might happen with divine names even if it's not just one individual, but a group. So like they're using Allah in a new way, these converts, these former Muslim converts, is that the uh, what you're imagining? No, what I mean to say is um, it could turn out that for some people, the right answer for them is Christians and Muslims are co-referring, or at least their use 
of God as Christians use it refers to the same entity as Muslims use of Allah. When they use the terms, depending on how they weight the information in dossier, for that individual, it may turn out that the answer is yes, same God. These two terms co-refer. Mm-hmm. But that can vary from individual to individual. So maybe the, I guess all of this was meant to say what we should be looking at is individuals and it may not be relevant how polls or surveys may not be relevant. They may not help us. It could turn out that everybody else is using the name in some standard way and you're the exception. You're like the person who named his dog Aristotle. And so you'll give a different answer than the group. And as long as you're not using the name in a deferential way, which is what we how we set up the case, the fact that everybody else is using the name differently isn't going to affect what the name refers to as you use it. So this is all just thinking out loud, Dale, about whether that sort of statistical information about groups is going to be relevant. And uh, I don't know, man. It's not clear to me. Fair enough. I appreciate your being bold and uh, going where no man has gone before, like the Star Trekkers. Um, I wanted to throw in a couple more interesting facts and get your reaction and see if you think they're relevant, either one of you. There's an interesting historical angle, so... It might come as a surprise to some people, particularly maybe some Protestants, that it seems that the initial reaction by Christians to Islam, which we see in John of Damascus, this famous writer who lived partly under Islamic rule in the 8th century, uh, his reaction was that Muslims did refer to our God, although God did not really send Muhammad, so he didn't believe Muhammad was a real prophet. In his book called On Heresies, John of Damascus treats Islam as just yet another heresy, just another branch off of the true faith, which is teaching something that's importantly wrong about the one true God. So he didn't think it was about a fiction or about some other being, but he he lumps them in with the Arians, etc., etc., Sibelians. Does that seem relevant? I mean, wouldn't this push towards co-reference? Because what would have changed since his time? Yeah, um, I think that is relevant. I mean, especially if at least in my case, the way I use the divine names is, I mean, at least it's a little bit deferential and what Aquinas says and what the popes have said and what experts have said, I do count that as relevant. I mean, on the other hand, there are going to be branches off the Judeo-Christian Muslim tradition that we think have probably initiated a reference shift. Oh, maybe this is going to be a little controversial, but what do we think about, um, for example, use of divine names in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints? Mm-hmm. Um, they talk about Elohim. They talk about God, God the Father. Mm-hmm. Are they saying false things about the God of the Old and New Testament? The conception is pretty radically different. Um, we've got like material objects existing in space, etc., at least on some versions of Mormon theology. I'm inclined to think that, that this is a pretty clear case of reference shift. From my perspective, it's shift from fact to fiction. But if you don't like that actual example, just imagine the theology develops even more, evolves even more, and becomes really radically, a, re- a really radical reconception of God. Eventually, we're going to get a reference shift, fact to fiction. So arrange all of those possibilities on a spectrum on the far left of the spectrum, we'll have clear cases of non-reference shift, like Arianism. On the far right, we'll have clear cases of reference shift, like Mormon theology, or if you don't like that example, something more radical. It could just be that Islam is somewhere in between. Maybe you think it's closer to the left than the right. Maybe you think it's in the gray area in between, where it's just unclear. And it could be that Prominent experts and writers in the past have just sort of gotten it wrong about where on the spectrum Islam is. Uh, Maybe John of Damascus thought, clearly no reference shift, whereas actually it's closer to a borderline case. And the best thing to say is it's indeterminate whether there's been a reference shift. So I guess that's that's how I respond to examples like this. Um, Mallory, do you want to say anything? No, I actually probably should go. Oh, Mallory has to run to class. Thanks a lot, Ms. Urban, for joining us. Really appreciate it. Again, congratulations on graduating and on the paper. Thank you so much. When the Trinity's podcast returns, what about the fact that millions of present-day Christians refer to God as Allah?
Dr. Bogardus, I wanted to throw one more fact out there, which is interesting and which I'm still digesting. This is the fact that Allah is still widely used in Christian Bibles. And I, I already knew this uh, was so for Arabic translations of the Bible. Um, but I recently read, again, reading some missiologists, that actually a bunch of Bible translations for languages and countries that have had a lot of Islamic contact, but are in other languages. So languages in Indonesia, Turkey, Malaysia, parts of Africa, even few portions of the Indian subcontinent. A lot of these translations in various languages and in Arabic use Allah for God. And if there had been a reference shift to fiction or to another being, this would be kind of a risky move, I think, on their part, on the mm -hmm. translator's part. Yeah. And to me, the translators are sort of separate from culture war concerns and even from kind of a lot of theological battles and they're just like trying to pick the best term you would think yeah it could be that to the best of their understanding these generic divine names are used in a purely attributive way and the attributes are somewhat minimal so that the christian god would qualify as the referent of this name if it turned out that islam were false and christianity were true that could be one thing that's going on so yeah. Even if they were even if they were wrong about how to weight information in the dossier, they're doing their level best and we shouldn't blame them for it. And it could be that in so doing, they could cause a reference shift back to fact. You know, it could be that once we realize Marco Polo's error, for example, and we start using the name as it was originally used and start adding information about Mogadishu, we could shift the reference of the name back to Mogadishu. We could, but it strikes me that they wouldn't do that because it would be sort of, it would be controversial and, and confusing, I think. I don't mean to say that they would do it consciously or intentionally. Yeah. I'm just saying it, it could happen. Yeah. Even though from their perspective, the name is used attributively and they're just using the name in an appropriate way. They could be wrong about that. Yeah. And nevertheless, in so doing, cause the name to shift back to the Christian God. That could be happening. Also, it could be that they're initiating the reader into a different use of that same name, that name Allah. My mm -hmm. understanding is that Arabic-speaking Christians use that name mm -hmm. uh, as just a gener generic divine name. And as the Santa Claus case shows one more time, it could be that two groups use the same name, but with different reference. That happened with Santa Claus over time, at the very least. But it could also be that two groups existing at the same time use the same name in different ways. I sort of speculated about this at the beginning of the last podcast, but it might be that in other countries that haven't absorbed so much of the Santa Claus myth, their term Santa Claus still refers to St. Nicholas. I think that might be the right thing to say about like the Netherlands and Germany. They haven't really taken up so much of this jolly Nordic elf myth they still tell stories about actual, the actual St. Nicholas. Mm -hmm. They still have a lot more rituals and customs that are connected to the life of St. Nicholas. They still call him like, you know, their analog of St. Nicholas. They still celebrate St. Nicholas Day. So it could be that two groups, even at the same time, are using the same name, but with different reference. So it could be that the translators of these Bibles and other religious texts using the name Allah are just initiating the readers into the use of that word by Arabic-speaking Christians. Yeah. There's one other fact that strikes me as possibly relevant about these, these issues, and uh, it was well known and well reported in Christian media that a few years back, uh, I believe it was Malaysia, the government ruled that Christians could not use Allah in Bible translations. Oh my. And um, they felt uh, threatened. They thought that they had, they had this idea that the Christians were going to kind of trick the Muslims by use of this <laughs> into thinking that the religions were more alike than they are and so then be able to convert yeah. them. So when they felt threatened, they insisted that Allah can only mean and should only be used to mean the Muslim God, although they were scoffed at in other parts of the Muslim world for this which I think shows the standard view is that it is co-reference. In America, a lot of Christians, particularly right-wing and traditional conservative Christians, they feel a bit put upon and threatened by Islam and by the way that progressive culture kind of defends it and puts it in a good light and so on. 
a lot of evangelicals will just flat refuse to use Allah for God. And they'll always say God or Jesus when they mean the Christian God. And they'll always say Allah when they mean the Muslim God, which is not the same God. Mm -hmm. So when threatens, both sides want to say, oh, no, we're not talking about the same being. But when they're feeling confident and like it can help their case, they want to say it does. And so this is the stance of Islamic apologists. Again, they strongly emphasize this, that, oh, we're talking about the same God we always have been. But there have been contexts where the Christians were feeling their oats and they made similar claims. Like this God who you guys think is best revealed by Muhammad is in fact best revealed by Jesus. And so they try to make their sale. You can see missionaries talking like this and missiologists and so on sometimes. So I'm I'm not sure what to make of this, but it does seem to be a fact that there's it matters whether you're feeling threatened or whether you're feeling confident like you're gonna you're going to harvest some of the other guy's people. Yeah, and there's some biblical precedent. I mean, one of the verses that might be relevant here is um, when Paul on Mars Hill says, hey, I notice you've got this monument to the unknown God or something, yeah. and I'm here, to t- I'm here to tell you about that God. As if whatever name the Athenians were using had any sort of causal contact with the Judeo-Christian tradition, as if it traced back to Abraham. Yeah, he's not concerned about syncretism or pluralism yeah. or universalism. Yeah, it's, it's, it's sort of a way into the conversation. Mm-hmm. Like, hey, this thing that you've been talking about all along, this being, I'm here to tell you more about that being, and I'm going to correct your misconceptions. Where, I mean, it's hard to see whether that could be true, that a monument to the unknown God was really talking about Yahweh, um, the Trinitarian God of Christianity. Unless, like, the the dossier associated with that name, as Greeks were using the name for that unknown god, was purely attributive, and it just meant something like any god we don't know about, or the maximal creator of the world, or something, then it might be true. If it was purely attributive, then Paul really was saying those attributes are had by the Christian god. There's actually a scholarly literature on this. The scholars call it pagan monotheism, okay. and there were some in the early centuries of Christianity in late antiquity, basically, who seemed to use the term Zeus very similarly to how monotheists use terms like Hatheos, you know, God, or various other terms for the monotheistic God. And it's not clear how seriously they took all the, the wacky adventures uh-huh. know, where he's raping and killing and so on. They seem to have been rather philosophical, some of them, some of them being Stoics, I think. Okay. Yeah, I don't think this was a shrine to Zeus. It was like to the unknown God. And I think it would be great if it turned out that Paul was right. I mean, yeah. I, think that, I think that he was right. And maybe it's because the way that um, Athenians were using the, the name associated with that God or just the description, turns out that the God of Christianity satisfies that description. And so it's true that the Athenians were talking about the God of Christianity all this time. You might think it was just rhetorical, but you might also just think he's deciding to use the word God generously. Yeah. Yeah. But I I mean, I take your point that um, sometimes members of one religion are a little more generous with their use of the name. Other times they're a little stingier. Uh, Depends on their purposes. So, I mean, it could be that there's a little bit of delusion going on and um, depending on what's at stake and what would best accomplish their projects? People answer this same God question differently. And again, I think that's something we have to try to guard against in order to actually get to the truth of this question. It really worries me that pride and fear can come into it. (laughs) I'm not sure what to make of that. Yeah. I don't have a place to put that in my theory about reference. And it could be that when you hear people disagreeing over this question of whether Christians and Muslims worship the same God, and some people who give emphatic no's could be that they're answering a different question. And maybe the question they're answering is, is the Christian conception really similar to the Muslim conception? Yeah. Are these, are the conceptions the same? Is, and is it not different in any important way? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then they think it's important to answer. No, we need yeah. to guard against misinformation about God. Mm-hmm. But I think that might, that, I mean, that's answering a different question and, there, the question is obvious. Yeah, there are important differences in the conceptions associated with the name God and the name Allah. For sure, you're right about that. But if we're actually interested in whether 
the way Muslims use Allah is referring to the God of Christianity, we have to be a little more careful. We can't just buy into that naive conception argument. You know, if the conceptions of two names are really different, they couldn't possibly co-refer. Right. That's not a good argument. So we have to be a little more, a little more careful, a little more philosophical. At the end of the paper, we speculate about the connection between co-reference and co-worship. I mean, the way this question is typically framed is, do Christians and Muslims worship the same God? Mm-hmm. Most people don't ask the co-reference question. We think that they're connected. We think that in order to worship the same God, Christians and Muslims have to be co-referring. But, and this part of the section was heavily influenced by that term paper that um, Mallory wrote for that class of mine. Um, so it's a bummer she had to run off to another class. But in that section, we speculate about the connection between worship and co-reference. And it's it's sort of an attempt to lower the temperature of the discussion, you know, um, mm-hmm. because we think it's the case that even if you are referring to the true God, it doesn't follow that your worship is going to be legitimate or acceptable to God. It's possible to engage in illegitimate types of worship. Right. Uh, we give some examples in the paper, like illegitimately innovative styles of worship. Um, if there's some kind of idolatry involved, that would be bad. If it's not yeah. sacrificially deferential, yeah. We give a sort of funny case of the the use of keytars, you know, like keyboards that are guitars. Maybe that's illegitimate. <laughs> we were just kind of joking about that. Um, but that's a that's a genuine question. I mean, if you think there are illegitimate forms of worship, then even if you are referring to the true God could be that you're not worshiping the true God. So settling the co-reference question may not settle the co-worship question. And also, I mean, it could be that even if you are referring to the same God and trying to adore that God and worship that God, it could be that um, due to some other parts of your life, you're you're not going to be given credit for that worship. Jesus says that in the end, some people will call out to him, Lord, Lord, and he'll dismiss them and say, I never knew you. And it's also possible, here's one more thing to consider, It's possible that even if, from the perspective of Christianity, Muslim worship is not hitting its target, it could still be that nevertheless Muslims will be credited uh, for this worship. Mm -hmm. We're told in Matthew 25 that um, Jesus says, whatever you did to the least of these, I'll consider it as having been done to me. Even though it's clear that like your acts of charity weren't done to Jesus himself, Mm -hmm. the sheep in that story are still given credit. Maybe not even with the intention of aiding Jesus or pleasing Jesus. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. So it's possible, even if worship is misdirected, that it's still credited to the worshiper. So there's some reason to think that this question of whether Muslims and Christians worship the same God, that not nothing super crucial hinges on it. At least the question of salvation may not hinge on it. It could be that people who never succeeded in referring to Jesus and never succeeded in worshiping Jesus, nevertheless still are given credit for things that they've done, as seems to be the case in Matthew 25 with that story of the sheep and the goats. It could be, anyway. That's that's a speculation that we float out there. And so, again, I think that could lower the temperature of the discussion, although we'll still want to guard against blasphemy. Members of each religion are still going to want to guard against blasphemy, against misinformation about the true God. There's still room for a kind of um, friendly discussion of these issues without thinking that salvation necessarily turns on it. Dr. Bogardus, thanks for talking with us. Thanks very much, Dale. It's been good talking with you. This week's thinking music has been Made of Metal by Art of Escapism. If you love the Trinity's podcast, please share the podcast on social media. Another thing you can do is give us an honest rating and review in the iTunes store for your country. You can support the podcast by giving us a one-time or a monthly donation through PayPal. Just look for the orange buttons on the right side of any blog post. Lastly, make your voice heard. Give us a comment on the blog post for this episode, or join our very active Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash trinities. Thanks for listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org.
Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind. <laughs>